Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me today to listen to a little bit of the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen. You know, I think uh, when we look at the word love, um, it can conjure up lots of different ideas and meaning. But I thought, you know, I would share with you today uh, a reflection that Fulton Sheen gave during a priestly retreat. And uh, the title of the uh, conference was The Three Words for Love. And so I'll share that with you today. And I want to, of course, um, welcome all the new listeners that have tuned in to our broadcast. Um, we are heard uh, through the network of Radio Maria in the country of Ireland, Australia, uh, United States of America, and Canada. So uh, we have quite a global outreach. And so uh, it is great to uh, be with you. And um, again, I never thought that uh, when I began this program, uh, over 10 years ago, that it would have this worldwide reach. And I'm grateful to uh, Radio Maria for, uh, of course, uh, sharing the uh, the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen uh, on their network. And so, again, to all my friends in Ireland, Australia, the United States, and Canada, I want to wish you a good day. And so, again, how we all say good day, good morning, uh, good evening, but still, uh, God's blessing upon you. All right, so I will share with you a reflection from Fulton Sheen uh, with the title, Three Words for Love. And then after that reflection, I'll follow it up with a catechism lesson. And I had mentioned to you earlier, um, a few weeks back, that we're going to try to spend uh, the year 2023 uh, going through as many catechism lessons as we could uh, in the time allotted to us. And so uh, today's catechism lesson will be on the humanity of Christ. And so uh, we all need to learn our faith together. So may I invite you just to become comfortable, to sit back and relax, and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Sheen, as he speaks about the three words for love. Please enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the word that you most often use, was love. The word the Americans most often use is love. Teach us by thy spirit the difference between the two. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
I gave a lecture at the University of Tennessee, and on a dormitory building about five or six stories high, the word love was written on every single window. It was spelled L-U-V. On the quiz program the other day, the question was, which is the most often used word in the United States? The answer was love. And it is generally assumed today, thanks to Fletcher and others, that anything is all right provided you love. Is it really that simple? Now here we're going to recall the different natures of love or the forms of it for the sake of teaching your people because you already know the difference. Unfortunately, we have only one word in English for love. So we have to use it for such disparate uses as I love Maryland crab cakes. I love the New York Mets. I love God. That gives you some idea of how confusing the word love is in English. The Greeks had three words for it. And we will go through the three. The first was Eros, E-R-O-S. Eros was that little god that used to shoot arrows into the earth to make them fertile. Eros, or love, was the subject of the discussion in the house of Agathon that Plato records. Eros was not that which pushed us toward another, but rather it was an attraction, so that Eros could embrace such things as love of a friend, a man, or a woman, love of art, love of philosophy, love of the good life. Every true and lasting friendship was related to Eros, such as the proposal of G.K. Chesterton. This is what he wrote to his future wife, Frances Blogg. There are four lamps of thanksgiving burning before me. The first, that I was born out of the same earth as you. Two, I have tried to love everything in the universe as a remote preparation for loving you. Three, I have never run after strange women. You cannot understand how much this prepares a man for true love. For my previous existence ends here. It has led me to you. That is Eros. I once asked a man what he would like to be if he could come back to earth two years after he died. He said his wife's second husband. That too is Eros. And then came Freud. And Eros became the erotic. And love became identified with sex. 
Or rather, we have sex without love. Eros now was the erotic or that which gave pleasure. You drink the water, you forget the glass. There is no communication of person with person. As I mentioned before, the fig leaf is over the face because it really doesn't make any difference. We are unisex, interchangeable. Real love implies the irreplaceability of persons. No one can take the place of a father, mother, brother, sister, and so forth. But sex is replaceable. And it has moved in our American life to the mind. It is not just only a body phenomenon. That is one of the reasons for the love of pornography. Pornography is a love of the abstract when the concrete use of a thing has been forgotten. I once met a woman who told me that she paid $250 for a coffee grinder. In grocery stores, when I was a boy, there were great coffee grinders, tremendous wheels. Well, she paid this sum in order to have this coffee grinder. Now, that is what might be known as coffee pornography, because she never intended to grind coffee. And so when the concrete use of sex is forgotten and it becomes used for the purposes of advertising and excitement and so forth, then it becomes pornographic. And this, unfortunately, is the state into which love has degenerated in the United States. And it makes it very difficult for us to mount the pulpit Sunday after Sunday and talk about love because just as soon as we say love, they have their own definition of it. And they have Freud on their side. Did you ever hear about the man who came to a Freudian psychologist and he was stretched out on the couch and asked his dream... He said that he dreamt about being in a canoe, and suddenly he found two Hershey bars on his lap. The Freudian said, were they identical Hershey bars? Yes. Their color? Brown, with a little silver. Well, said the Freudian, can't you see that this is a repressed desire for twins? Do you know any twins? Yes, he said, there are two girls, about 19, who pass my house every morning. How are they dressed? Brown. Any jewelry? Yes, a little silver on the brown. Well, can't you see that this is a repressed desire for the twins? Now come back in two weeks. What did you dream about? He said... I dreamt about the twins, and if you tell me that has anything to do with Hershey bars, I walk out. Well, this is the first definition of love, and it has, as you see, a very proper meaning, Eros. But unfortunately, it has been degraded. And uh, no modern psychologist has written better on this subject than Rollo May. 
where he very much bemoans the loss of love in erotomania. The Greeks, however, had a second word for love, which was philia. Philia is known to everyone because we know Philadelphia. And philia was a love for humanity. And it was to be irrespective of any classes, race, colors, or any other distinction. Philia was not just a liking, it was a loving. Now, there's a difference between the two. Liking is in the emotions, in the feelings. Loving is in the will. Because liking is in the emotions, the emotions can change, grow dull. But loving is in the will and is therefore subject to command. Hence our Lord said, a new commandment I give you, commandment, love one another as I love you. This is the difference between the two. Now I can illustrate it by what happened today. I was hesitant if I should tell it. Yes, I will tell it. I don't like chicken. Why don't I like chicken? Because when I was a boy, my father used to send us Sheen kids out to the one of his farms every weekend and every summer. And the tenant farmer, in order to get in good with us, every day would give us chicken except Friday. So that in the course of my young life, I rang the necks of 48,632 hens. At night, I don't have nightmares. I have night hens. I have visions of headless chickens squirming in barnyard dust. So I don't like chicken. But today, I was given chicken. And I ate it because I could love it. I didn't want to hurt the good father there in the gallery who gave it to me. This is the difference between liking and loving. Now, loving, therefore, is a very sound evangelical principle as regards humanity. Uh, there's a Russian story to the effect that an angel came once to an old woman in hell and said to her, if you can think of any one good thing you did during your life, I will let you out of hell. And the old lady said, well, I once gave a beggar a carrot. Very well, said the angel. I will let a carrot down into hell, and you get hold of it, and I will pull you out. The old woman was being pulled out, and of course thousands grabbed onto her, and she says, get off. This is for me. And they all fell back. Because Philly implies solidarity and community. I once asked a missionary in the Pacific Islands, what was the greatest virtue of the people? He said, I can tell you the greatest virtue in terms of the greatest vice. It is the sin of Kaipo, the sin of eating alone. They would go without food for several days, 
until they could find someone with whom they could share their food. An East English Indian mystic by the name of Singh, S-I-N-G-H, a few years ago wanted to go into Tibet to evangelize. He hired a Tibetan guide to take him over the Himalayas. They had gone up but a short distance when they became tired and sat on the snow and ice. And Singh said, I think I hear someone groaning in the abyss. And the Tibetan said, well, what difference does it make? We're almost dead ourselves. And Singh went down, found the man, and dragged him to the base of the Himalayas, to a little village, and became refreshed by his act of charity, came back to find the Tibetan guide frozen to death on the ice. I read a Jewish midrash the other day, and it concerned a celestial visitor who was being brought from earth to a higher region. He was brought into a room where there was a banquet on the table, luscious foods and viands. But everyone at table, thin and emaciated and sad. The earthly visitors said, Why are they hungry in the face of all that food? Well, he said, Look at their arms. Their hands were strapped out straight. Then he took him to a higher region, the same luscious banquet, everyone happy. And suddenly he noticed. But their hands are strapped out straight, too. Yes, he said, but they feed their fellow man. This is philia. Now, philia is done through the triple communication of love that we mentioned, speech and vision and touch. That is why a touch of someone who is ill or in need is far better sometimes than just giving a check. Here I'm not speaking of sensitivity training. I was in a classroom of University of California. A group of students, boys and girls, were sitting around in a circle in alternate fashion, holding hands. And, and they said, what do you think of this? See, this is the way we get acquainted with one another. This is what we call sensitive training. And I said, listen, go out and hold the hand of some wrinkled old man or some wrinkled old woman. Go out and touch the hand of a leper. Then you'll know whether you love your fellow man. And this highest degree of philia, therefore, comes through service. And when we become exhausted through service, we are always happy and refreshed. And it may very well be that this is where our CCD breaks down. 
I changed the name to Christian life, away from Christian doctrine, because I did not like the emphasis on doctrine. Our blessed Lord said, If you do my will, you will know my doctrine. He never said, If you know my doctrine, you will do my will. Obedience is the path to knowledge. Obedience prepares for the Spirit. After 30 years of obedience, our Lord received the Spirit. The scientist learns the laws of nature by sitting patiently and obediently before nature to allow it to tell him its secrets. And so, if therefore we could introduce not just doctrine, but service to fellow man, the acting out in a concrete fashion of Christian doctrine, then it would mean much more to them. They would learn the gospel, learn the doctrine, the love of neighbor, not just simply from a book, but from self-sacrifice. It is one of the reasons why the, the training of youth and helping the missions was always not only a religious act, it had a profound psychological effect in the training and development of youth. This, then, is philia. Now we come to the third and last Greek word, agape, which has no English equivalent. When a new love came to this earth, the love of God who would not remain in heavenly headquarters but came down to this world, we needed a new word to describe someone who would love the unlovable. As he said, it is easy to love those who love you. But to love anti-love had never been known before. So the New Testament writers had to search about for a new word. It was used in Greek, but rarely, and it had no fixed meaning. And the agapine love was therefore taken over by the New Testament writers. And in the verb and in the noun form, it is used 250 times in the New Testament. And this is the sacrificial love. This is the love that we preach and we try to inculcate. The agape love, not the eros or just the philia alone, because the filial love will come out of this divine love. As an example of how it was practiced, the wife of a friend of mine was one night called downstairs. Her husband was talking to a Nazi whom he knew. The husband was a Jew who became a Christian, a Lutheran. 
And the husband said to the Nazi, how many Jews have you killed in the last six weeks? He said about 25,000. In what places? He mentioned the name of cities. In this particular village, how many Jews did you kill? He said, I killed all the Jews. Do you feel any remorse? No. Do you ever think of asking God for pardon? He said, there isn't any such thing in all the world as forgiveness. There isn't any such thing as God. He said, let us see. My wife is asleep upstairs. She has not heard this conversation. I shall call her down. She dressed and came down, and he said, Sabina, this is the man who killed your father, your mother, your three brothers and two sisters. And she looked at him and then threw her arms around his neck and kissed him and said, As God forgives you, I forgive you. And the Nazi threw himself on his knees before the husband and asked him to pray to God for forgiveness. This was the divine forgiving love. I will tell you how I failed it once. Well, failed it many times, but this once was notable. I was visiting lepers in Baluba, Africa. I had with me 500 silver crucifixes, about two inches high, and I intended to give each leper a silver crucifix. And the first one who came to me had his left arm eaten away by the disease, and he held up the stump. There was a rosary around it, and he put out his right hand. It, it was the most foul, fetid, noisome mass of corruption that I ever saw. And I held the crucifix above it and dropped it. And it was swallowed up in that volcano of leprosy. And all of a sudden there were 501 lepers in that camp. And I was the 501st. For I had taken that symbol of God's identification with man and refused to identify myself with someone who was a thousand times better on the inside than I. And then there came over me the awful thing that I had done. And then I dug my fingers into his hand and pulled out the crucifix and then pressed it to his hand. And so on for all the other 500 lepers. And from that time on learned to love them by touch, by the incarnational principle. So the divine love is sacrificial love. This is the love that we have to begin to bring back to our people. And when we mention love, remind them that it's not what they think it is. Love does not mean to have and to own and to possess. It means to be had and to be owned and to be possessed. It's not a circle circumscribed by self. It's arms outstretched to embrace all humanity within its grasp. The love that they are looking for is never going to be a satisfying love. 
Every woman promises a man the love that only God can give. And every man promises a woman a love that only God can give. And a finite creature cannot bear this yearning of the infinite love any more than a statue of bronze can rest upon the stem of a flower. They're all looking for another kind of love. And today, with the breakdown of the marriage covenant, which is always the symbol of the divine covenant, with this breakdown now, there is the addition of zeros, which never, never brings happiness. All that we ever get in this love world anyway is just a fragment, a fraction of love. We catch a spark that is caught up from the great white flame of love, which is God. That's all we ever get. And it is to remind us of another love. If the spark is so bright, then what must be the flame? So bring home to the people, then, once more the cross in any language that you please. It's the cross, it's self-denial, it's victimhood, but this is the gospel of Christ. And we cannot soften him. He is the one who gave his life, and that's the way he measured his love. Greater love than this no man hath. And when we stay close to that love, day after day and hour after hour, then as we move among others, they'll begin to feel that love. And when we talk to them, they will listen, and we can then give them the secret of life. We can say to them, this human heart of yours is not perfect in shape and contour like a valentine heart. There's a small piece missing out of the side of your heart and every human heart. And that may be to symbolize a piece that was torn out of the universal heart of humanity on the cross. But the real meaning is that when God made your heart and every other heart, he found it so good that he kept a small sample of it in heaven and then sent the rest of it into this world where it would try to fill up all the love it could but where it would never be really happy never totally in love never able to love anyone with a whole heart because it hasn't a whole heart to love with and where it will never be happy until it goes back again to God to recover that peace that he has been keeping for it from all eternity. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that first reflection on the three words for love. And I was touched by the story that Fulton Sheen shared uh, about his visit to the leper colony in where he uh, presented small crucifixes and, of course, uh, became a very brave soul, of course, interacting with so many uh, victims of leprosy. But Fulton Sheen wanted to share the power of the cross, the power of the crucifix. And may I invite you to uh, develop this holy devotion of praying with the crucifix, putting a small crucifix in your hand and spending a little bit of time thanking the Lord for dying on the cross for you. 
And, you know, Fulton Sheen, uh, you know, would encourage people to put a crucifix on their desk for a couple of days and see what it does to your soul. And it will have a, a very good effect on your soul. And so I want to send you on your little uh, mission today to find a crucifix and uh, put it in a place where you can uh, pick it up each day and meditate on God's love for us. And so uh, finding the crucifix and putting it in your life is so important because it reminds us that we all are carrying a cross and we can unite our cross to our blessed Lord's cross. My dear friends, I am so happy to be able to share with you uh, some of these catechism lessons from Archbishop Sheen. And so uh, today we will uh, listen to the lesson on the humanity of Christ. And so uh, I invite you once again now just to sit back and relax and enjoy what I like to call our Sunday school class together. Uh, But again, our catechism course with the Venerable Archbishop Sheen, again, as he speaks on the humanity of Christ. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. We have emphasized to a great extent the divinity of Christ, and rightly so. But it often happens that we forget the humanity of Christ. And it is of that that we would speak. There are two verses in the scripture, one from Isaiah and the other from the epistle to the Hebrews, which seem to be contradictory. Isaiah says that our blessed Lord was reckoned with the transgressors, or sinners, in the epistle to the Hebrews, that he was separated from sinners, one with them, and at the same time, not with them. He was with them, reckoned with sinners, inasmuch as in his human nature he took upon himself all of the penalties of sin. He was separated simply because he was God. And also because even in his human nature, he was like to us in all things save sin. Now we will penetrate rather deeply into the meaning of this human nature that Christ assumed. Remember, it had no human personality. In a certain sense, therefore, the human nature of our blessed Lord was unlimited. It was almost as if, uh, for example, we had a playground in which there were no fences or walls. Then all children could come into this playground. Now, the human nature of Christ, simply because it was not capped, it was not limited or confined by a human personality, could embrace within itself all the human natures of the world. In other words, that human nature of Christ represented, to a great extent, the human nature of every single person that has ever lived. You read his genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew, and in the genealogy of Luke, you will find saints, but you will also find sinners. There was a bar sinister, In his escutcheon, we find Gentile women like Ruth, find a public sinner like Rahab. These were typical of the humanity that Christ assumed into himself when he became incarnate, but also every single human being that would ever be born until the end of time. 
was incorporated into this humanity. Hence, there is not a Buddhist, there is not a Confucianist, there is not a communist, there is not a sinner, there is not a saint that is not in some way in this human nature of Christ. You are in it. Your neighbor next door is in it. Every persecutor of the church is in it. When, therefore, we are puzzled about how other people are saved, we need only realize that here is implicitly all salvation. All men in Christ. They may not recognize their incorporation to Christ, but in a certain sense, every person in the world is implicitly a Christian. Implicitly. He's in that human nature. Just go back and think of all of the repercussions of the sin of Adam. There isn't an Arab, there isn't an American, there isn't a European, there isn't an Asiatic in the world who does not feel within himself something of the complexes, the contradictions, the contrarieties, the civil wars, the rebellions inside of his human nature, which he has inherited from Adam. We all struggle against temptation. And why? Simply because our human nature was disordered in the beginning. Let me tell you, there is a terrific monotony about human nature. You must not think that you are the only one in the world who has a tortured soul. Now, if the sin of Adam had so many repercussions in every human being that has ever lived, shall we deny that the incarnation of our blessed Lord has had a greater repercussion? Can it be that the sin of one man shall have greater effects in disordering human nature than the incarnation of the Son of God has in ordering all humanity? That is why I say that everybody in the world is implicitly Christian. They may not make themselves explicitly Christian, but that is not the fault of Christ. He took their humanity upon himself. Just suppose that there was a great plague which affected a wide area of the world. Then some doctor in his laboratory found the remedy for this plague and made it available to everyone. There would be some who would seek the remedy. There would be others who would not. They might say, how do I know he has the remedy? Why should I bother? I will cure myself. Are they not all potentially saved? It is certainly not the fault of the scientists that they are not cured. Is the fault of people themselves. And so it is with the person of Christ. He brought salvation to all men. Oh! And it is up to us to find that salvation in him. That is one of the reasons why our blessed Lord was so hopeful about humanity. He always saw men the way he originally designed. He saw through the surface the grime and the dirt, the real man underneath. 
He never identified a person with sin. He saw sin as something alien and foreign, something that did not belong to a man, something that mastered him, but from which he could be freed in order to be his real self. Just as every mother sees beneath the dirt on the face of her child her own image and likeness, so God always saw the divine image and likeness beneath us. He looked on us very much the same way that a bride looks on a bridegroom the day of the marriage. And as a bridegroom looks on a each and every one of them are at their best. Later on in life, they may fall away from this ideal or Perhaps they will forget the ideal. One day a woman came to me and told me that she could never love her husband again. And I told her to try and think back of how much she loved him the day of the marriage. And they stood side by side at the altar. For that is the way he really was. What the woman had to do was to see beneath the distorted image the real person to whom she committed her life. And this is precisely what our Lord does in coming to this earth. Even when men raged and stormed beneath his cross, he saw them as homeless and unhappy children of the Father in heaven. Before them he grieved. Before them he died. This is the vision our Lord has. But now we want to bring this home in a little more intimate way. And here we're going to take a term called transference and try to make clear what the humanity of our blessed Lord did in relationship to our sins and our suffering. There are three kinds of transference in the life of Christ. There is physical transference. There is psychic transference. And there is moral transference. If our blessed Lord did not come to this earth to undergo every single kind of agony and torture and pain that we ourselves suffer, then we could say, does God know what it is to suffer? Did he ever go without food? Was he ever betrayed? Was he ever blind? Let me tell you the best way to describe our blessed Lord humanity is that he is a God who took his own medicine. He made man free. Man abused that freedom and brought upon himself all of the ills that he is heir to. And God came down and took upon himself a human nature in order that he might feel every kind of torture of the human soul and every twisting pain of a human body. That is what I mean by transference. First of all, physical transference. We read about this in the gospel, namely that our blessed Lord took upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses. 
I was always very much disturbed about this particular passage because there seems to be no record that our Lord was ever sick. He must have had a very perfect human nature. After all, he was conceived by the divine spirit of love and also born of a woman who was immaculately conceived. Therefore, his physical organism must have been a perfect specimen of man. This seems also to be indicated by the mere fact that I suppose every woman wants to be the mother of a great son, and one day when our Lord was preaching, some woman shouted out in the crowd, Blessed is the womb that bore thee, and the breast that nursed thee. She would have loved to have been the mother of thee. And then too, when we find these soldiers and the enemies crowning him with thorns, beating, scourging, buffeting him, spitting in his face, ridiculing him. What did all this mean but an attempt to drag this lovely human nature of Christ down to their level? They could not bear the majesty of his being as they would rob a man of his reputation. So also they would rob him of the nobility of his character. So our Lord must have had a perfect human. But this passage, he took upon himself our sicknesses and our illnesses. What does sacred scripture mean by that? I think for about two years I have been pondering over in my mind that passage. And the answer came in reading the work of a famous Swiss psychiatrist. He tells the story of two doctors both of whom had healing hands. One of the doctors stated that whenever he healed anyone, that something of the sickness of that other person passed to himself. The other doctor stated that he often cured patients of angina and he had to give up healing because he suffered so many attacks of angina. Is not this the key? Now let us go into some of the cures. We often read in the gospel that when he cured the deaf and the dumb and the that he sighed. We read that when he rose Lazarus from the dead, he groaned. I believe that at that moment, our blessed Lord took upon himself the ills and the sicknesses of others. When he cured a blind man, I think that he felt inside of himself, not just the blindness of that one man, but all the blindness of men that have ever lived. So there's not a blind man in the world, in that deep cavern of senses, where there is no light, who could ever say, did Christ know what it was to be blind? Yes, he did. And the dumb, the mongoloids, did he feel that? Yes. He, the Word, the eternal Word, felt their dumbness. Not just of that one dumb person, Numihi, but of every single dumb person. And when he rose the dead and brought them back to newness of life, 
I think he felt the agony of death. He went into that fear. As we know, he actually did in the Garden of Gethsemane. St. Paul tells us that he died for all men. In other words, the death that each and every one of us will have to undergo. Christ himself felt. He knows what death is. Knows what your fear of death is. This is the Christ that comes to you. That is why we say he's the only one that can ever understand your illnesses and your sickness. And why? Simply because he has that sickness, that illness inside of himself. He bore it for you and with you in order that you may have strength and patience as he did. Then there was not only physical transference. He also suffered psychic transference. By psychic transference, I mean that he took upon himself all the loneliness of people, their mental ills, the tragic effects of their psychoses and neuroses. He felt all of the darkness of the age. He knew what it was to be a skeptic and a doubter. He knew what went on in the heart of any man who raises a clenched fist. Of all those who hate so much that their mouths are craters of hate and volcanoes of blasphemy. After all, if our blessed Lord was to redeem the atheists and the communists, he had to know how it felt to be an atheist, did he not? How it felt to be a communist? He had to feel their God-forsakenness as his own. And that is why on the cross, his darkness crept into his soul. He confessed to his father in, in his human nature his utter abandonment. So he uttered that mysterious shriek. My God! My God! Why? Why hast thou abandoned? Here he traversed the darkest valleys and deserts of mystery with all human brothers. We might almost say that this is a moment when God was almost an atheist. It was a moment when he almost went into hell. But with this difference, that in that terrible torment of loneliness, he cried to God. And so from that moment on, when anyone says he is forsaken by God or he denies God, he must realize that he has a brother who endured the bitterness of separation to the very last extremity of Golgotha. And if he showed the way, and we can find the way out too.
This was the loneliness of Christ in the garden and the loneliness on the cross. Like a sponge, the silence of our Lord soaked up all the evil. And because he soaked it up, evil lost all of its strength. After all, when an atheist complains about the ugliness and evil of the world, does he not know in his inmost heart that this is not the way the world was intended to be? He's affirming the very existence of God by the intensity of his complaint. Without God, there will be no one to complain to, and in his complaint, he has Christ to whom he can go. And finally, There was moral transference. Moral transference of sin. Sacred scripture says that our blessed Lord was made sin. By that is meant that he took upon himself all of the sins of the world as if they were his own. Every blasphemy was put upon his lips as if he himself had spoken the blasphemy. Every theft was in his hand as if he himself had committed the theft. His flesh hanging from him was in token of all the rebellion of the flesh of the world. He knew what sin was. Perhaps I can make this clear to you by telling you that some years ago a girl wrote to me from a large city of this country telling me that at the age of 18 she went to her first dance. She went in company with her cousin. Her house was some distance from the gate. Her cousin dropped her at the gate. And in that distance between the gate and the front porch, she was attacked by a stranger. In due time, she found herself with child. The only ones who would believe her were her mother and the pastor. Neighbor women said, oh, isn't it terrible? The poor woman has one bad. Some girls in the choir would not allow her to sing because she was wicked. And she told me of all of this torture that she endured, and she said, what's the answer? I wrote back to her, and I said, my dear girl, all of this suffering has come upon you simply because you bore the sin of one man. I therefore assume that if you ever bore the sins of ten men, you probably would have suffered ten times. And if you ever took upon yourself the sins of a hundred men, your sufferings would have been a hundred times worse. And if you ever took upon yourself the sins of all the world, you might have had a bloody sweat. That's where your sin in that bloody sweat on Calvary. In this human nature that so loved us that we call it the sacred heart. God love. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program 
Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that catechism lesson from Archbishop Sheen, and may I invite you to visit our website, uh, bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find the Sheen Catechism, along with uh, over a hundred YouTube videos and many of his uh, lectures. Uh, so everything Sheen is there at bishopsheentoday.com. And if you just Google the Sheen Catechism, you'll find it. So again, it's a great uh, teaching tool, this uh, 50-part series that Archbishop Sheen created back in 1965, and many are still using it today. Lent is around the corner, so may I invite you to pick up a Bishop Sheen book or two. Uh, he wrote a great deal on the seven last words, and so uh, one of my favorite books is The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, uh, a Sheen anthology, and also there is a book called The Seven Last Words of Christ Explained, and so you'll see, uh, of course, the good feature of Bishop Sheen on the cover, and so again, great Lenten reading. My dear friends, thank you for joining me for this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, and I invite you to come back again next week. And so until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.